A Napa guy knows more isn't always better, unless we're talking about full-size vans. These beasts do more than get you from A to B. They have so much space, a man can live in it. With shag carpeting, waterbed, and a sweet lava lamp, these mobile abodes have all the comforts of home. With quality parts and plenty of Napa know-how, you can keep the original tiny house running longer, stronger. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Welcome to CrimeWire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to CrimeWire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones and I are joined by retired attorney Margo Nash, who practiced law in Massachusetts for over 30 years. In 1995, she was appointed to act as 15-year-old Eddie O'Brien's guardian ad litem. Eddie was charged with the murder of his best friend's mother, Janet Downing. Margaret got to know Eddie and his family well over the course of the two years that the case was being litigated first in the juvenile court and then in the Middlesex Superior Court. Eddie was convicted of first-degree murder. Margot knew then and remains convinced that Eddie was the victim of a confluence of political and legal agendas which were being advanced by some of the highest elected political officials in the Commonwealth. However, she did not know then the extent to which these events converged to convict him of a crime he did not commit. In 2015, at the 20th anniversary of Eddie's continued incarceration, she made a commitment to him to write his story, which she titled, The Politics of Murder. Readers can decide for themselves whether Eddie was wrongfully convicted of a murder he did not commit. Margot, welcome to CrimeWire. Thank you for having me, Denny. Um, this uh, this story of Eddie is, uh, you know, some heavy duty stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I'd I'd like uh, if you would start at the beginning and tell us about the murder, um, the actual crime, what information investigators developed that led them to Eddie as a suspect and his subsequent arrest. Arrest, excuse me. Uh, but before that, for. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar with the legal jargon or the system, could you explain what a guardian ad litem is? Certainly. Uh, You usually see a guardian ad litem in a child custody case, and the guardian ad litem is appointed by the court to act for the minor in the minor's best interest, not necessarily as a minor's lawyer. Um, A lawyer would advocate for what the child is saying the child wants. A GAL advocates for what's in the child's best interest. Um, It's very unusual to see a case where a delinquency case where a guardian ad litem is appointed. But in this particular instance, 
um, uh, Eddie's father was the first person to, on the scene to find the body of um, Janet Downing, and the Commonwealth said they intended to call him as a witness. Therefore, he was potentially a witness against Eddie. So they felt he needed someone in Perrin's patrie, as they say, you know, someone to advise him uh, about his uh, the legal proceedings and um, and 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 uh, and decisions that he might need to make uh, along the way about uh, about his legal rights. And um, so the, his his attorneys actually asked that someone be appointed, and the court appointed me to watch after his best interests. So you were involved in that capacity you just explained, but you were not his uh, attorney for the for the actual uh, trial and uh, the no, I was not. I was not his attorney. He had uh, he had two attorneys that worked together, um, Robert George and Bob Lowney. Um, it, technically, I, they should have been consulting with me uh, about decisions that were being made uh, legally and procedurally and strategy-wise, as they would have with Eddie's parent. Um, however, they did not uh, do that, nor did they do that with Eddie's parents. I might add. So that did—that's part of the reason why it took me a long time to realize um, how uh, the uh, these worlds collided uh, and 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 set up to to convict Eddie uh, because I didn't have access to the actual uh, physical evidence and documentation and forensic reports and uh, if I had I might have caught a lot of this the issues that I found in reviewing his files much earlier um, but that's not gonna I mean. We can only look forward at this point, but uh, their lack of communication with me was was another part of the problem. Okay, so let's uh, let's begin then at the beginning. Uh, Tell us uh, who Janet Downing was. Janet Downing was a uh, a wonderful woman. She was forty two years old. She was recently divorced. She lived with three of her four children in the house that had been formerly the marital home. Her husband was remarried um, and living in a different town. Uh, she grew up in Cambridge uh, in a, 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 a religious family um, and uh, had, had a couple of brothers and a sister. And uh, she married her husband and they proceeded to have four children. She was a just a lovely lady. She was a clerical worker at um, uh, at, a, at a medical center in the uh, community, and she supported her children and went to work every day and was an integral member of the uh, of the very close knit uh, community where people uh, ha- people owned their houses for generations and generations, and people grew up in those houses generation after generation. It was a very tight-knit community. And then in uh, July of 95, someone uh, stabbed her to death in in her home. Now, uh, Eddie apparently had uh, one of Janet's children was a friend of Eddie's. Her, uh, one of the twins... 
Ryan Downing, who was 16, he was a year older than Eddie, was Eddie's best friend. They'd grown up, they'd been friends since they were toddlers. Uh, Eddie had been in and out of the Downing home, and Ryan had been in and out of the O'Brien home uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Um, So they were best friends. And um, that day, it was a Sunday, uh, Eddie, there was a group of friends that all hung out together. Eddie had a crew of about maybe four or five uh, young boys who all uh, did everything together and hung out together. They were all at the Downing home till about 10 of eight or so. Uh, that evening. And um, they all left. Some of the boys went swimming. Eddie went home. It was a hot, muggy night. Uh, Eddie's house was directly across the street. It's actually uh, 52 feet away. Um, uh, They were, Eddie was on his front porch with his father and uh, some of his siblings and some of the area neighbors had been a hot, muggy day. Everybody was on their front porches, no air conditioning in the day. So um, people's windows were wide open and there was a lot of activity on the street. And uh, Eddie's whereabouts are accounted for um, until about um, 9.15 when he decided to uh, go down to, the, um, to to a couple of blocks get something to eat um so as best we can tell um janet downing was alone in her house from about 10 of 8 until about 8 o'clock when her son her other son the other twin paul came home paul was in the house from 8 to 8 30 and then he left and then the next uh thing that happened was that eddie uh, stopped by the Downing home on his way down to Burger King to see if Ryan and his other friends had returned from swimming yet. And he found Janet Downing uh, stabbed to death um, in her house. At, that was at about 9.15. Uh, Eddie was, Eddie's friends returned at 9.20 and saw him running out of the house. Um, and that was pretty, that was pretty much the, the only um, uh, thing that the police had. Um, they didn't even have that the night of the murder. Uh, let, let me just talk about the murder a little bit. This murder was, was a, uh, a slaughter. I mean, it was just horrific uh, murder. She was, Janet was stabbed 98 times. She, uh, 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 everywhere, from her head to her legs to her back, uh, the fatal wound um, appeared to be one that went uh, through her lung, severed her rib, and went into her back cavity. Um, she had most of most of the, a lot of those deep penetrating wounds were in her chest, but none on her breasts. However, her bra had been removed; it had been stabbed 36 times, and then replaced back on her body. So she was undressed. The Clothing was stabbed, and then it was put back on her body. Um, she was beaten, uh, and she had uh, thirty—I think thirty-six incised wounds, which are which are not deep, but uh, ear-to-ear slashes across her throat. And they obviously spent a lot of time with um, with this victim. Uh, the 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 struggle took place uh, in the hallway. Uh, up and down the stairway, 
and and in the dining room where she lost her life. Well, Marco, um, did, I'm sorry, Denny. Were they able yes. to to determine whether it was the same weapon that was used on all of the stab wounds? Uh, that was never even really investigated, if you ask me. They never found a, uh, a um, murder weapon. What they did find was a piece of one hilt from a pen knife that Eddie had uh, shown people. Uh, that the pen knife he had was um, had a three inch uh, blade, uh, and it had two hilts, one on either side. They found a hilt in the house, and they determined, or that's they their theory was that that pen knife was what caused the injuries. However, it's clear that a three inch um, pen knife could not inflict wounds that were four and five inches deep. Uh, and five eighths, or I think five eighths of an inch wide, or uh, you know, very wide uh, stab wounds. And this uh, pen knife was really a small pocket knife, um, so uh, that never made any sense. And they eventually did um, DNA testing on that hilt, and they did recover DNA from it. And it was there was Janet Downing's. A DNA and male DNA that was not Eddie's. He was excluded uh, from that. So, uh, let me let me ask you, Margo. I, I want to make sure I'm right on the timeline here. Uh, Paul, one of the twins, was in the home until about eight thirty. Then he Correct. took off, and which would and then. Uh, Eddie uh, found Mrs. Downing's body at about 9.15, so it's about a 45-minute uh, time frame. Am I, am I correct on that? That would be the best that I can uh, determine from all of the testimony and, and uh, forensic evidence. Yep. About a 45-minute window. And the, uh, the killer, uh, apparently, from what you're describing, with a number of stab wounds and so forth, this was would it be a rage killing? Would that be the word to use? That uh, it, anyone it would be a rage wanted killing. to inflict that it, amount, right? Okay, so somebody would, was upset with her, apparently, right. and had a sexual component, obviously. Yeah, with the bra, and and the killer, uh, you know, you're saying where he removed clothing, stabbed it, and then replaced it on the body. Uh, in, indicates someone rather cool. Uh, obviously, he he is assuming it was a he. Uh, yeah, was in a rage in the sense that he wanted to inflict maximum damage. He really wanted to send a message, right. if you will. Uh, yet he was cool enough, you know, to 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 remove the clothing and uh, and stab it or, and and then uh, place it back and, on and the, the body. And the incised wounds on her neck were determined to be post-mortem. So he, he spent a lot of time with the body. Did, did Okay, so now we have the murder. It's uh, reported the, the other kids are returning home. They see Eddie leaving, running. But, uh, but, from the, right, but they don't go in the house. They knock on the door. Um, they don't. What happened was Eddie was in the house 
when the when the kids knocked on the front door, he was he turned and the he was confronted by a man uh, in a um, in uh, who, who had a uh, nylon stocking over his head, um, who had a large hunting knife, and who told him to shut the door uh, so that the boys wouldn't come in, which he did. He turned, he put, he pushed the door with the back of his hand. And then he held the knife to Eddie's neck and said, I know where you live. I know all of your family. If you say anything about this, I will kill your entire, entire family and I'll have time to do it before they catch me. He, then he said, so to Eddie, Eddie, get out of here. So Eddie, Eddie confronted was, the killer. Yeah. Nose to nose kind of. Yes. Um, and that's okay, when Eddie so then, ran out the basement door, which was wide open already. Um, okay. And he ran down the stairs and out the basement door. And that's when the kids saw him jump from the backyard and, and walk down the street. Uh, is the assumption then? It wasn't until 10 o'clock. It wasn't until 10 o'clock when Ryan did come home and went into the dining room and found his mother that the body was found. Um, he, he, Ryan came home and he ran over to the O'Brien home and said, my God, my something's the matter with my mother. There's blood all over. And um, Mr. O'Brien ran over to the, to the downing home while calling 911 saying, you know, get up here to 71 Boston street. There's, Something's really wrong. You need to get here right away. And so he called 911 on his way over. He went over. A neighbor joined him, the next-door neighbor to uh, to Janet, uh, who shared a duplex with her, and they both found her there. And Ed knew enough not to – Mr. O'Brien knew enough not to touch anything and to wait for the police. And um, the police uh, got there immediately. And that's when the body was discovered. Now, meanwhile, Eddie they... had gone down to. Meanwhile, Eddie had gone, had run from the house, gone down to Burger King, ran into the men's room. He had been in the bushes. His legs were all scratched up. He was very shaken. Obviously, he was terrified. He was 15 years old. He was a freshman in high school. He was terrified. He. At home, there was a three-month-old baby and a three-year-old, and his grandfather, who was the former chief of police for that city, uh, who was dying of cancer. And he was terrified that his family would be harmed if he said anything. So he tried to compose himself, and he washed his face and his hands. He doesn't remember there being any blood on his face or his hands. Um, he he uh, tried to figure out what what he should do and then unbelievably and this is the part that any lawyer would say oh no I'll never be able to sell this to a jury please don't tell me this is your story but this actually happened he left Burger King and was walking down to a little convenience store where he worked where all of his where his friends were and people he trusted and cared about were uh, he went was walking there when he was confronted by two teenagers who said, who, who pulled a knife on him and said, give me all your money. And he handed over his $17 and he looked up at them. And uh, one of the, the, the man with the 
child, he was a kid with the uh, knife said, well, now you've seen my face. I've got to, I've got to stab you. I've got to stick you. I think he said, and he lunged out at Eddie. And that's when Eddie thinks that he got cut because he grabbed the knife. He then walked to the convenience store and said to them, boy, I just got jumped. And they noticed his hand was cut and they called the police. So you asked, what evidence did the police have? At 10 o'clock, they find the body by Mr. O'Brien calling them. And right around the same time, perhaps three or four minutes later, they get a call from the convenience store saying, we have young Eddie O'Brien here and he has a cut on his hand. And from that moment, woman stabbed, Eddie O'Brien has a cut on his hand, that he became the focus of the investigation. With that, that was the only evidence, if you can call that evidence. The boys had well, not what said type anything of, to anybody. What type of motive was there? I mean, did he did he have they, any altercations with this family? Who was no, um, no, nothing like that. If there was no motive, and and that's what the district attorney um, was so concerned about. And he said, the district attorney himself, they're elected in Massachusetts. He was the district attorney for all of Middlesex County. And in an unprecedented uh, decision, he decided he personally was going to oversee the case. Of all the homicides in their office, he decides this is the one he's going to oversee. And that had a very political motive. Um, And he said the next morning, we have no, we can't even guess what a motive is because this is, this is a 15-year-old boy with no history of violence, no history of antisocial behavior, and no delinquency. Uh, and they went without a motive forever. And, of course, they don't have to prove motive uh, until it during the process of the transfer hearings, which are the hearings that are held in juvenile court to see if he should be tried as an adult. The psychologist or psychiatrist who had spent hours and hours and hours with him and tested him psychologically and determined that he did not suffer from any mental illness remarked about the lack of motive that this child had. And um, that's when the district attorney became concerned and he began to develop a motive at that point. And um, his first his first stab at developing a motive was that he had that Eddie had some sort of sexual crush or infatuation on her, on Janet Downing, which was absolutely just fabrication. And then by the end of the hearing, well, there were two transfer hearings because he lost the first one and they had to appoint it. They appointed, they appointed a new judge and had a a transfer hearing all over again with another judge. By that time, the DA had hired a FBI profiler and now Eddie was a sexual sadist. Um, and he was transferred to adult court when he actually got to trial. All the motive was at trial, according to the DA, was an unusual interest in in Janet Downing because he asked um, her son, why does your mother sit in your car when she comes home from work? How come she doesn't go in the house? Everyone remarked about that with Janet. She'd sit in her car and smoke cigarettes and not go in the house. And he asked him why. And and it, you know, it once and another time he said to another friend, don't ever eat at Ryan's house. His mother's a bad cook. 
that was considered uh, a remark that was, you know, that was con- had showed unusual interest in her. And he also asked, and then this was another thing that all the neighbors remarked on. She had a very close female friend that lived behind her, and they spent a lot of time together. And he asked, is your mother a lesbian? I don't think he even knew what a lesbian was, but um, and asked that once and because uh, he heard adults talking about it. And Ryan said, what are you, crazy? She has four kids. How could she be a lesbian? I mean, and so those three remarks were what the Commonwealth said gave him, proved he had an unusual interest. What's fascinating is that 20 years later the book comes out showing that he had absolutely no motive never had a motive and these were completely i mean we went from no motive to sexual sadist to unusual interest and the district attorney was asked what his opinion of the book was and he said um you know her, her that that it was complete fiction that my book was really fiction and that it was very clear what happened that night. And he said that what happened was that Eddie had gone into the house to move a painting on the wall and woke Janet up and he had to execute her. Now, that was the first time anybody's heard that theory. And that's what he said two weeks ago. That's amazing. Oh. <laughs> well, what... Um... <laughs> Wow, what were what were Janet's other relationships like? I mean, was there any um, ill feelings between her and her sons, um, with any other family members, her husband? I mean, surely the, this they, was all investigated, right? None of it was investigated. Oh my God! None of it was investigated. There were there were people who had very very clear information. Janet Downing had spent ten hours that day with a neighbor who lived across the street and next to the O'Briens, and she had expressed to her her an intense fear of a family member, her brother-in-law. She had said, "If anything ever happens to me, you have to promise it'll be investigated," and. And, uh, you know, and she explained why she was afraid of this brother-in-law. She felt he had been coming into her house. He had been moving things around. Now, what happened was her sister, her younger sister, Carol, who's 10 years younger than her, was married to, to this man named Artie Ortiz. And they had a little baby named AJ, and they became homeless. And so Janet offered to allow them to come in and live with them. And so they made over one of the downstairs rooms, and the family of three lived in that one room. And it was not a pleasant experience. Uh, The Ortiz's fought constantly, according to many reports. And But when Janet found out that Mr. Ortiz, her brother-in-law, was dealing drugs out of the basement to the neighborhood kids, she threw them out, and she told them they had to get out of the house. And he was very angry at her for that and had done a number of um, things that were terrifying to her, uh, having her followed and uh, penning in her car. And uh, they're all detailed in the book. She had, a, she had, she had told other friends 
besides Gina Mahoney that she felt somebody was going to murder her. And um, she wanted to make sure that everybody knew that this should be investigated if anything happened to her. Um, the police absolutely refused to even take reports uh, on, on these uh, on these accounts of other neighbors. Gina Mahoney kept telling them, I have a lot of information about the people she was afraid of, the person she was afraid of. And they said, we don't need any more information. We've got all the information we need. In other words, they actively refused to investigate anything that pointed away from Eddie O'Brien. What a perfect example of someone who needed to do an evidentiary abuse affidavit, right, Denny? <laughs> Because um, obviously, oh, absolutely. obviously, her statements would be considered hearsay anyway. Um, even if they, you know, even if they were allowed in, they would they would knock it down as hearsay immediately. Um, right. It, but so, there were other ways to get this information in. Right. Um, if you ask me, one is is that uh, the the neighbor that she had been with all that day could testify that she saw this gentleman's car, which was very distinctive because it was a cab. He drove for a cab company in her driveway every day while she was at work. He was in the house every single day. He never returned the keys to her. He told her he had lost them. Uh, More importantly, he appeared at Gina Mahoney, the same woman. He appeared as soon as he, he was at the scene He was at the house when the ambulances and first responders arrived. And we know that because his cab was blocked in by the ambulances. He couldn't move his cab. So his cab was parked there when they got there. And they got there at 10 o'clock. And um, uh, furthermore, at some point, he realized as he was talking to, to the neighbor that he lost his keys. And he kept saying, oh, my God, I lost my keys. I'm really, you know, and they kept saying, don't worry. I'm sure the cab company has another set. And he said, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. And he tried to get through the um, the yellow tape because he lost them in the backyard, which is where the escape route was for the killer. And the keys were later found there and returned to him. And he was never investigated. Did the did the defense attorneys have good investigators? The defense attorneys sadly failed Eddie at every possible <laughs> uh, at every possible turn. They had no investigators. Um, uh, they the parents, you know, were lower middle class, working class family. Um, they mortgaged their home. They paid them hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they never even uh, did their own independent testing of the evidence, DNA testing. Um, they, in fact, seemed to not understand the science of DNA because it was just before the trial that the district attorney finally produced DNA reports two years later, two years after the evidence was collected. He, he sends out the 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 uh, critical stuff for uh, DNA analysis according to his uh, his the way he presents the case and the um, fingernail scrapings of the victim that were taken by, at the autopsy um, 
exclude Eddie as the contributor to the DNA under her fingernails. The murder weapon excludes Eddie as contributor to the DNA on murder weapon. They are what they consider the murder weapon. Eddie had no blood on him when he was found, when he came to the, into the store at 10 o'clock after walking out of the scene, after being, running from the scene. He didn't have any blood on him. He, his hands were no blood on his hands, no blood. I mean, this was a blood bath in the house. He didn't, his clothes were seized. There was no blood on his clothes. He had a white t-shirt on all day. He had green shorts on all day and the same sneakers on all day. All of them tested for blood, no blood. No blood around his cuticles, under his fingernails, in his hair, anywhere. Whereas had he committed that crime, he would have been saturated in blood. It just seems, I know it seems remarkable when I say these things that he got convicted. And that's why I have always said, how can he get convicted? But his attorneys didn't understand the fact that he was excluded from the DNA. They didn't understand DNA. And so in their opening and closings, they didn't present to the jury the most um, exculpatory evidence they had in their possession. You know, the, the, the defense attorney said in his opening, and you're going to hear about the blood to see. You're going to hear all about that. But he doesn't say to him, but you're going to hear that his, you know, that his DNA is not on the murder weapon. And you're going to hear that the fingernails that she fought with her life for do not contain the DNA of Eddie O'Brien, but they do contain the DNA of another male, but we don't know who, you know, it was a, a, a monumental failure of, of, of everything of uh, the district attorney and his job, the defense attorney and their job and the system and its job. Well, it seems like, you know, it seems like there would be enough evidence to get this, re, you know, to get this reopened, wouldn't, isn't there? With well, all of the the, uh, the advances in technology that we have and know about DNA in itself, other, you know, other than that, I'm sure there's even I, more. I believe that there is. However, you know, I'm not a judge and, um, the standard in Massachusetts, I'm not sure where it is in other states, is he has to show um, that he has new evidence. All of this evidence was available to him 20 years ago. His attorneys just never did anything to it with it. I see. How so about it, incompetent counsel? Uh, ineffective counsel is certainly uh, um, one of one of the uh, appeals that is available to him, and I hope will be made by his his new uh, attorney, uh, his new team of attorneys. Um, however, you know, in in my experience, uh, every defendant claims ineffective um, counsel, and I think one percent of those people actually have their cases overturned for ineffective counsel. But there are other more substantive things, like did the prosecution uh, commit any misconduct? Did they? Did they not produce evidence when they had had it? Did they say they didn't have it when they did have it? Various um, uh, issues such as that and uh, and questions about why, um, y- you know, 
questions about the integrity of the evidence. Let me just leave it at that because it's still ongoing. It's still ongoing. Um, um, we're, Eddie and I have been working on, and, and I know his legal team has been working on, other areas where it appears uh, there may have been prosecutorial misconduct. That will get the case reopened, I hope. But uh, that's part of the reason why I wrote the book was to get – this story has never been told. The story was told in the papers. Eddie was convicted in the newspapers long before he ever took the seat in the defendant's table. Um, this this case was so hot and so sexy, and it was covered um, gavel to gavel by court TV. It, every appearance he made was covered by every major TV station. And it was the altar boy murder case. And, you know, cause Eddie was an altar boy. Um, it, it's just a, it was a phenomenal, uh, experience, um, uh, to have, to go through it and never ever did he have any spokesperson telling his side of the story because his counsel made a strategic decision that he was just going to deny that Eddie had been at the scene. And when it became clear that that wasn't going to work, it was too late. And until you put Eddie at the scene and you let him tell his story, the story doesn't make sense. And in some ways, the jurors had to convict him with no alternative path to go down, except he's seen running from the house and he has a cut on his hand. If you don't explain the rest of the story and uh, and you don't understand the science of DNA and, and blood transfer and all of that stuff, then, you know, how can you expect a jury to, to you know, to uh, differentiate and to fill in the blanks that the defense never gave them? Has this case ever been submitted to um, the Innocence Project? That's who has it now. Oh, good. I, I, I have it, it, actually. It's it's the Innocence Program. It's a BC uh, law school clinical program that is overseen by the Committee for Public Counsel Services Innocence Program from Massachusetts, which works closely with the National Innocence Project. Right. I, I was just going to interject that I, I have some clients that I've worked with for several years that. Um, they're private investigators, and they worked very closely with the attorneys for Jonathan Fleming, who was exonerated out of Brooklyn. And then there again, the 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 evidence that they were able to dig up 25 years later was in the was in the um, the possession of the police officers in the possession of the DA's Mm -hmm. office all those years. Um, Mm -hmm. And they were able to produce it and he was exonerated after 25 years. So, I mean, there, there's hope and hopefully that he has, he has a good, very hopeful. Yeah. And I'm hoping he's got a good private investigator working alongside his attorney that can, can get this proven. Because um, you're right, it sounds like so many different um, areas of prosecutorial misconduct going on. That what, would what, be my assessment kind of as sen- well. But yes, 
What kind of sentence did Eddie draw? What? Uh, how? How long it turned? Life without parole. Life without parole. Oh my God! At age fifteen, huh? From fifteen was the. Uh, that's that's. You know, it reminds me of during the OJ uh, experience. I think uh, they would have called this a rush to judgment. Tunnel vision, I think it's called. Yeah, well, and a lot well, more things could be called. Exactly. With the you know the district attorney was running for the attorney general position, and uh, this case, he he fought the perception in the public the whole two years that he was using this case for political gain to win that election, and he won that election, and Eddie lost, and he's now been incarcerated for 22 years. He's 37 years old, and he has um, never gone past the ninth grade, um, and his, he has been denied a lot of opportunities for education. Uh, he's got his GED, but he's pretty much self-taught. You know, he's he's read his way um, to literacy, to uh, political literacy, historic literacy, and he's you know he's he's a pretty good investigator and lawyer himself. Let me tell you. Well, it's just an uh, no. amazing story. And and it's not just a story. This is this is someone's experience. Not only did he lose, you know, his half of his adulthood by now, he lost his childhood. This is wrong. Yes. Wrong. As a matter of fact, I I just, I, I just saw him um, this week. I went to visit him, and he gave me a picture, and it was a picture of him with two of his sisters when he was when he was. In, first incarcerated, he had a 19-year-old sister, uh, a, uh, a 12-year-old sister. Well, she was 10 uh, when he went in. 17, 10, um, a three-year-old named Mary, and a three-month-old named Megan. And the picture he sent me was uh, with that three-month-old Megan, who has just had her first baby, named Gwen. So Megan was there with her baby. Jessica, who was 10 years old, was there with her two children, who are 12 and 9 or 8. And, um, and Eddie, who was 37 and with gray hair, holding the baby. I mean, that's how long he's been in jail for the three-month-old to have grown up and have her own baby. So it's a very sad case. Uh, Margo, what do you uh, hope now that the the book? What do you hope that will accomplish, or uh, what can it accomplish for for Eddie? Well, I'm hoping that it will accomplish some of what Delilah was talking about that that enough people will will be informed of the facts surrounding this case and not just the newspaper headlines that they were fed by the district attorney Tom Riley. Um, but they, that they will see that this is a, a very complicated case, that there was a rush to judgment, that there was a, uh, a an intentional disregard for really viable um, uh, uh, avenues of investigation uh, of other suspects. I'm not saying – I don't know who killed Janet, but I believe that we can find out. I believe we can run those DNAs through uh, the CODIS system 
and maybe we'll come up with a match. I believe that, you know, that there were five unidentified bloody fingerprints at the scene that were not Eddie's. Let's run them through APHIS and see if we get a match on them. I think we can find out who killed Janet Downing. So I'm hoping that the public will agree with this and say this deserves our attention. We agree that this should be reopened because um, the same judicial system that allowed this conviction to happen, which I which was a runaway train, uh, and the only and the judge who tried to stop the runaway train um, was uh, removed from the case by the Supreme Court um, for no reason other than it did not. He was he would he refused to do what the Commonwealth wanted him to do was to allow Eddie to be tried as an adult. He felt and and still feels very strongly. And I talk about him in the book. He, he still feels very strongly that committed this murder. He deserved to be in juvenile court, not in adult court, because he had no record and he had no discernible mental illness. So if he committed this crime, you know, his potential for rehabilitation was excellent. Um, but in fact, that judge was, was uh, called and told to change his opinion that he had written. And he refused to do that. And when he refused to do that, they removed him from the case and it went up to superior court and he got convicted as, uh, as an adult and got life without parole. Now, speaking of the book, where can people buy the book? The book, uh, you can buy it at wildbluepress.com uh, or um, at amazon.com, um, and uh, it, it, it's available. It's, your local bookstore can order it. Uh, it's available um, in that form as well. It's also in Kindle form on amazon.com, and next month there'll be an audio book coming out on iTunes. So. Well, that's great. So it's available, and again, the title of the book is The Politics of of Murder. The Politics of Murder. The Power and Ambition Behind the Altar Boy Murder. Okay, we're going to have to wrap it up here. We're running out of time. Uh, Margo, I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing this, uh, what I consider to be a very troubling story. And thanks also to our listeners. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Delilah. This is Maury Moreland Morrison, here to tell you GEICO has more than just great savings. Much more. GEICO's been around for more than 75 years, back when they were using Morse code. Sorry, that's just my sense of humor. What's more, with GEICO, you get 24-7 access to licensed agents on the app, online, or over the phone, so you can talk to them at night or in the morning. So forevermore, just know that no other auto insurer has more more than GEICO. More power to you. GEICO. Expect great savings and a whole lot more.